Hello guys and welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a podcast that focuses upon the more obscure and unfamiliar cases from the shores of the UK, both solved and unsolved. As ever, I'm your host, Paul, the creator and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are the enthusiasts that I love to join me each week, and I appreciate you being here. Thanks very much. So I hope everybody's good this week. Are we still enjoying the summer? It's still pretty nice. Bit cooler at the moment, but um, manageable, I think. We can't really complain, can we, because we have had a belter here this year. And many of you, hopefully, still have holidays to look forward to. A chance for you to get away a bit with the kids driving you mad being on the summer holidays. Is it too long or what? The summer holidays when I was a kid seemed to last absolutely forever. But um, maybe it is too long. These kids get really bored, don't they? You can't just put a true crime podcast on for a kid and say, there you go, fill your boots with a big series of case file or something like that. That just wouldn't work, would it? It would be good if it worked, but it doesn't, sadly. It would probably end up in more boredom or trauma. Anyway, I do digress. Thank you very much for the continued reviews and shares of the show that I get all over my social media, plus my followers on Patreon. Thanks so much, guys, for supporting the show. It means the world, and as ever, it keeps the show moving forward. And if you don't follow me on Patreon and you'd like to, to get some extra bonus episodes of the show, For a very reasonable contribution each month, uh, they can be yours, along with some other offers as well. If you head on over to Patreon and search out The True Crime Enthusiast, you can find me there, or the links are in my show notes this week as ever. Now I do have a promo for you this week. It's a US podcast called Murder Under the Midnight Sun. It's a true crime podcast from what I consider to be an absolutely stunning part of the US, Alaska. And it's a place that I've always wanted to visit because I think it just looks breathtaking. It's hosted by an Alaskan native, Ariel. And it looks at all aspects of strange and macabre crime from there. From stories of deranged hunters to teenage killers. And it's a hell of a big state, Alaska, so it's got to hold absolutely a rook of tales, hasn't it? And Murder Under the Midnight Sun is also back after a bit of a hiatus. So here's Ariel to tell you some more about it. I'm a true crime nerd and a lifelong Alaskan. And in my podcast, Murder Under the Midnight Sun, I bring you all the dark secrets of this frozen wasteland that I call home. We're the serial killer and missing persons capital of the United States, and we have our fair share of crazy crime stories. So if you want to hear some new cases that you've never heard of before, give my show a listen. Murder Under the Midnight Sun, available wherever fine podcasts are sold. You can find the link to Murder Under the Midnight Sun, or Mums, as it's quite good to call, with the episode show notes for myself this week. And now, back to my own show. So this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the episode is called Death on Duty, and in it we'll meet two individuals filled with intense hatred and disregard for human life, but each having a particular hatred of police officers. Each one was to go on a rampage of carnage over a period of a few weeks, and each was to leave several people dead or scarred for life in the wake. Nine years separate each case, with the first taking place at the beginning of the 1980s. Please be advised that this episode does contain descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so please use your discretion as ever, guys. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as first this week, 
we look back at the case of an individual who became Britain's most wanted man and earned the moniker the Phantom of the Forest. So some listeners, particularly ones in the UK, will be familiar with the 2010 Northumbria Police armed manhunt for a man called Raoul Moat, who was a 37-year-old Newcastle-upon-Tyne man who'd shot three people just two days after being released from Durham Prison. Moat shot his ex-partner Samantha Stobbert, a new boyfriend Chris Brown, and PC David Rathband with a sawn-off shotgun. Now Chris was killed, Samantha was severely wounded but she survived, and PC Rathband was left permanently blinded by his injuries, which sadly was to lead to him taking his own life some time later. Moat was on the run for six days before he was cornered in the Northumberland town of Rothbury, and these were six days throughout which the nation was gripped between the constant reports of a crazed gunman at large and watching the manhunt for Moat unfold on television. Even fallen England football legend Paul Gascoigne became involved in the drama at one point. He turned up at the police cordon with a chicken and a dressing gown for the gunman who he claimed to know and he felt sorry for. I know that sounds made up, but honestly, that's true. It really is. So Moat was eventually cornered and he was to take his own life during an armed standoff with police. Now it received massive publicity and it was the largest manhunt of its kind in modern times. But it does have a precursor, albeit nearly 30 years before, in 1982. This case too involved an armed gunman at large who shot five people over a period of 17 days before taking his own life. Even a police dog was shot during the rampage and manhunt for a killer who became known as the Phantom of the Forest. The Trail of Terror began early in the morning of Thursday the 17th of June 1982 at the beauty spot of Norwood Edge, which is a country park situated near the B6541 Otley Blubber Houses Road, which is near the market town of Otley in the county of West Yorkshire. PC David Ian Haig, a 29-year-old West Yorkshire police officer, had started a day shift that day at 6am and one of his first tasks was to check the daily crime reports in order to follow up any outstanding actions that were passed on by the off-going night shift. One of these tasks was the serving of a court summons for suspected poaching to a man who was reported to be living rough in a van in the Norwood Edge area. PC Haig made this his first port of call that day, and he should have been back on patrol relatively quickly after such a simple task. But when PC Haig had not responded to several subsequent radio messages from his control room, a separate patrol was sent out to search for the officer, thinking that he may be having vehicle trouble or he might have had an accident. What the patrol found was to launch what was at the time one of the biggest manhunts in British criminal history. At 8am, PC Haig was found in the Warren Picnic site in the Norwood Edge Country Park by his colleague PC Mick Clipson, part of a police patrol who was searching for him. PC Haig lay dead beside the open door of his own police patrol car, a bullet hole from a .22 calibre bullet clearly visible in his forehead. Just out of reach of his outstretched dead hand was the clipboard, which provided police with their first clue. On it, PC Haig had written Clive Jones, date of birth, 1810-44, Leeds, 
NFA-KYF-326P. Now the vehicle registration number was quickly traced as belonging to a metallic green Citroen car that had been sold for a cash sale of £475 in Kingsbury in London in January 1982. Clive Jones was the person who had indeed sold the vehicle, but he was able to provide an alibi for the time of PCH shooting, and although a witness was quickly found who'd reported seeing a green metallic Citroen parked at the Warren picnic site at about 6.35am on the morning of PC Hague shooting, police theorised that the Citroen could have changed hands several times without officially being registered between January and June that year, meaning this was an effectively a dead end. Two days later, on Saturday the 19th of June, the green Citroen was found abandoned in a cornfield in the village of Ledsham, near Garforth in Leeds, about 27 miles from the scene of PC Hague's murder. Early the following morning, 53 miles away in the village of Torxey in Lincolnshire, 75-year-old widow Frieda Jackson heard an intruder in her home, a remote bungalow in the village. She got up out of bed to investigate and was confronted by an armed gunman, who she was later to describe as about 35 to 40, slim with dark straggly hair, who looked and smelled unkempt, and who spoke with a northern accent. The intruder tied Mrs Jackson up and robbed her of £4.50 before leaving through the back door. Now Mrs Jackson remained tied up until 8am when a bread delivery man on his rounds heard her calls for help and alerted police. Mrs Jackson was shaken but was otherwise unharmed. On Wednesday the 23rd of June, less than nine miles away from Torxey, another house was broken into by the same man. The house in question belonged to 52-year-old electrician George Luckett and his wife Sylvia. Again armed, the gunman had broken into the house and after subduing the couple, had tied them together by the elbows. He told the couple that he needed their car and then he went outside to check the amount of petrol in the vehicle. Returning inside the house, he found that the Lucketts had managed to slip through their bonds so the gunman then shot both George and Sylvia in the head in cold blood. George was shot first and was killed instantly, but Sylvia survived, managed to free herself and make it to a neighbouring house to raise the alarm. She was left with permanent brain damage from the shooting though. The gunman meanwhile fled in the Luckett's car, a brown rover with the registration number VAU875S having robbed them of just a paltry sum of money. Now at the time, North Yorkshire police were implementing a new computerised system that could be used force-wide, having learned the costly mistakes of badly indexed and non-collated information from the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry just a few years previously. The computer system, which was a precursor to the modern-day Holmes system that's now used as an investigative tool for police, it had a powerful search facility, and because of the relatively close-knit geography of the three crimes, information indicated that the crimes could be linked, and information from each inquiry was fed into the computer. Because the crimes spanned three different counties, North Yorkshire, Lincolnshire and Nottinghamshire, three different forces liaised with each other, and the incident room covering each crime was equipped with a visual display unit that connected through telephone line to the North Yorkshire database 
allowing each force to search the computer. The crimes were officially linked the next day, on the 24th of June, when ballistics testing proved that the same weapon that had been used to kill PC Haig had also been used at the scene of the Luckett shootings. So police now knew they were looking for a cold-blooded double murderer, but they didn't have anything further to go on, apart from the description given by Mrs Jackson of the man who had broken into her house and robbed her. Sylvia Luckett was still too badly injured to offer a further description. The same day that the three incidents were linked, there was a further incident, this time back in North Yorkshire, and it served to highlight just how dangerous the man, who by this time had three police forces hunting him, was when he was cornered. Bickley Forest is a large forest situated just eight miles from Scarborough, and it adjoins Dalby Forest, which is comprised of more than 50 square miles of thick trees, dense undergrowth and extensive bracken. A North Yorkshire police dog handler, PC Kenneth Oliver, was on a van patrol covering the area that evening at about 6pm when he came across a man who was parked up in a brown rover car, registration number CYG344T. Now remembering the circulated reports of the Luckett stolen vehicle and being suspicious of the man sat in the car, PC Oliver readied his dog and approached the vehicle. When he was just four feet away from the driver's window, PC Oliver saw a handgun pointed at him and a shot was fired, hitting him in the face, but luckily not seriously injuring him, it just grazed him. Retreating, PC Oliver was then shot twice more, but each bullet only grazed his head and his arm respectively. He managed to release his dog and sent it to attack the gunman, who promptly shot the dog, but again thankfully only causing it a minor wound. This gave PC Oliver the valuable time to get to the safety of a nearby property and to raise the alarm for assistance. The gunman disabled the police radio in the van and then drove it a short distance into the forest before returning to the rover car and torching it. He then disappeared into the depths of Dolby Forest. Armed police arrived on the scene rapidly and a search started, but light was fading fast and it had to be abandoned. The forest was surrounded as best as possible throughout the night by armed police and a massive search began in the morning at first light. Throughout the weekend of the 25th to the 27th of June 1982, scores of police officers were involved in this search of Dolby Forest for the gunman, who by now had received this moniker, the Phantom of the Forest, from the press who were reporting upon the hunt for him, and despite so many people looking for him, he was certainly living up to this name. Local gamekeepers and forestry commission workers who knew the area well assisted police in the search and all campers and holidaymakers were evacuated from the area. Local residents were warned to stay indoors unless it was absolutely necessary for them to go out, with some even leaving their homes completely and going to stay with relatives out of fear. All roads leading out of the forest were manned with police roadblocks and the forest was blanketed as best as possible in a strong police cordon. A real sense of fear hung over the area. There was a crazed double murderer on the loose, who only by good fortune had not killed four people and one dog to date. It was imperative that he was found and captured before there was any more bloodshed, but police had come to realise they were dealing with an exceptional quarry. The killings had covered such a wide area, and the phantom, 
who was by now Britain's most wanted man, had managed to avoid capture and slip stealthily through the police cordon. He'd shown such skill at evading capture, going to ground and avoiding the areas that police were searching, that more than one police officer only half-jokingly suggested that he must be charmed. Darkness and appalling weather had also been on the side of their quarry, who could obviously move stealthily and survive by living rough. And the Phantom of the Forest was to kill again on the 28th of June 1982, and this time his victim again was a serving police officer. Police Sergeant David Thomas Winter and PC Michael Woods were carrying out routine vehicle checks on the A64 road near the village of Old Moulton, about 20 miles from the scene of PC Oliver's shooting and the focus of the manhunt at that time. Well aware of the manhunt that was still concentrated within the area, because as we said, Dolby Forest is a vast area, both officers were increasingly vigilant that day. So when a call was received about a suspicious-looking man who was near a public house on the outskirts of Old Malton, the police decided to investigate, all the time bearing in mind that this might just be the elusive phantom. So sure enough, the two officers arrived at the location and nearby saw a man matching the description they'd been given of the suspect. He wore a blue woolen hat, a khaki jacket, he was dirty and dishevelled, unshaven, and had a long walking stick in his right hand, and a blue plastic shopping bag in the other. Sergeant Winter got out of the car to approach the man, and as he did so, the man pulled a gun from his clothing and began shooting. So Sergeant Winter turned and fled up a nearby alley, and jumped over a low stone wall to take shelter, but the gunman followed the officer and shot him three times at point-blank range. Two bullets entered Sergeant Winter's body, whilst one entered his neck. He was killed instantly. The gunman then fled, again back into the depths of Dolby Forest, whilst PC Woods raised the alarm through the police radio in the vehicle. 31-year-old Sergeant Winter left behind a wife, and a 14-month-old daughter. Knowing that the Phantom had struck again, the area was immediately surrounded by police, many of them armed, and a thorough search of the area was undertaken. Residents were again warned to stay indoors behind lock and key. All houses, shops and business premises were searched thoroughly. The villages of Malton and Old Malton were sealed and roadblocked and the mass focus and police presence now moved the 20 or so miles down to the old Malton police station, where the task force headquarters were now established to operate from. But again the Phantom evaded capture, as a torrential downpour hindered the police dog search, as they were unable to pick up any scent. By the following day, over 600 police officers were involved in hunting for the Phantom, with one in six of them armed, and each officer involved in the hunt was now wearing protective body armour. Police helicopters were used, even an RAF reconnaissance unit was drafted into the hunt to give aerial support, and no less than 139 sightings of the wanted man were investigated, with each one proving to be false. But by this time, in fact just a few hours before the murder of Sergeant Winter, police had finally discovered the identity of the gunman that they were looking for. The Phantom of the Forest now had a name and a face that could be issued to the public. On the 28th of June 1982, Police Constable from the Warrant Department of West Yorkshire Police 
discovered that a man named Barry Peter Prudum had failed to answer court bail following a serious assault in Leeds in January of 1982. And what stood out about this was Prudum's date of birth was October the 18th, 1944, the exact same date as the one PC Haig had written on his clipboard. Because the close proximity of an attack in Leeds and the date of birth written on the clipboard at a murder scene seemed a real solid lead and more than a coincidence, photographs of Prudum, together with others, were shown to the police dog handler who'd been injured, PC Kenneth Oliver. PC Oliver unhesitatingly picked out Prudum as the man who had shot him, and Prudum's fingerprints matched those taken from the abandoned green Citroen car, so police now knew for sure that Prudum was the Phantom of the Forest, Britain's most wanted man. A picture of Prudhomme was issued to the press and public with the warning that he was wanted for questioning in connection with the shootings and not to be approached because he was to be considered armed and extremely dangerous. So now police knew the identity of the man they were hunting, but where was he? On Wednesday the 30th of June, police were approached by a survival expert named Eddie McGee, who was a former army physical training instructor and was the author of several survivalist textbooks. McGee was well trained in the art of tracking, having learned his skills from Aboriginal tribes in Australia and Pygmy tribes in Africa, and he offered his services to assist in the hunt for Prudhomme. This was immediately accepted by police, and McGee and a colleague of his began to track the fugitive, beginning at the scene of Sergeant Winter's murder. In the Dolby Forest area, a makeshift hide was quickly found that the wanted man had been using, and McGee and his colleague followed tracks from it in a search that took them all of the next three days and led all over the old Malton and Malton areas. Many of the tracks were very recent. Prudum hadn't tried to get away from the general area, but instead seemed to be playing a bit of a cat-and-mouse game with police who were hunting for him. McGee was also of the opinion that Prudhomme would now be near the point of complete physical exhaustion due to being kept on the move by the constant police presence searching for him. The manhunt moved into its endgame early on the morning of the 4th of July when police received a telephone call from Mr Morris Johnson of East Mount in Malton. Mr Johnson spoke to police at 5.45am and reported that he his wife Bessie and his adult son Brian had been held hostage at gunpoint in their own home by Prudhomme since 5pm the previous day. He'd not harmed any of them, but he had tied them up. During the time they'd been held hostage, Prudhomme had confessed to them the murders of PC Haig, George Luckett and Sergeant Winter, the attempted murders of Mrs Luckett and PC Oliver, and the burglary at Mrs Johnson's home. He'd left their house just 45 minutes before at 5am. Immediately the area was surrounded and the village completely locked down and sealed off and by 7.30am McGee and an armed escort had begun to search the rear of the Johnson's house for footprints. McGee found one that was very fresh almost instantly and he followed tracks across the grounds of a nearby lawn tennis and bowling club that terminated near the remains of some fencing panels that leaned against a stone wall and that were covered with brambles and bracken. McGee, while stealthily examining the scene, noted that while the majority of the brambles were thick with the early morning dew, there was a black patch where the dew had been brushed off. 
Suspecting that he was hot on Prudhomme's trail now, McGee was to later describe the moment. I took out a probe and went forward, feeling the ground. There was a little bit of blue plastic bag which casually moved to one side. I put my hand forward to lift up the probe, and as I did, suddenly a foot flew back and sent me rolling back. I jumped in the air, but didn't shout. I just retraced my steps and disappeared around the back of the wall, then motioned to the officers, There, we'd got him. Armed police soon surrounded the area where Prudhomme had been cornered and shouted to him to surrender, but there was no answer. Shortly afterwards, Chief Inspector David Clarkson of West Yorkshire Police and Inspector Brian Cheaton of North Yorkshire Police, both armed officers, approached the fencing panels and attempted to move them away from the wall. The response was a shot fired from inside the fencing and both officers moved back to a safe distance. They did, however, fire four shotgun rounds towards the fencing panels in return first. Further calls to surrender were again met by further gunshots, so further shots were fired by the police and two percussion grenades were thrown in. After a period of silence, at 9.46am, the officers then returned and again attempted to remove the fencing panel, and this time they were successful in doing so. Beneath it, Barry Prudhomme lay dead with a pistol on his chest pointing upwards. He'd been shot just a hundred yards from the task force control headquarters, where the hunt for him was being directed from. The 17-day manhunt, which in total had involved 4,293 officers, and had cost in the region of £347,000, was now over. So who was Barry Peter Prudhomme and why had he embarked on such a rampage? He was born in 1944 as the illegitimate son of dressmaker Kathleen Edwards and soldier Peter Currillo. Barry never got to meet his father though. His mother married a man named Alex Prudhomme in 1949 when Barry was five and Barry was to take his stepfather's surname. He spent his early years in a terraced house at 39 Grosvenor Place in Leeds and was educated at the local Blenheim Primary School before going on to the Meanwood Secondary School. By no means an academic, Prudhomme nevertheless showed promise at sports, where he was described as being especially good at boxing and cross-country running. His youth was punctuated with bouts of minor criminal activity and mischief, but never anything too serious or involving violence, and his youth was really otherwise unremarkable for many of his fellow classmates and contemporaries. Upon leaving school, Prudhomme managed to gain an apprenticeship as an electrician, and reportedly this was a role that he showed real promise and aptitude in, and he could have had a successful career at. He married a girl who was two years his junior in October 1965, when he was aged 21, and he and his wife Gillian went on to have two children, a daughter in 1966 and a son born in 1970. The year before his son was born, Prudhomme had enrolled in the Territorial Army SAS Volunteer 23rd Regiment that was based in Leeds. He'd always been an enthusiast of firearms and the military, and not wanting to be part of a normal regiment, Prudhomme enrolled in SAS 23. He participated in many weekend camps and manoeuvres, and was described as a fitness freak, but because he had an apparent dislike of discipline, was told he'd be unsuitable for the SAS. Bitterly disappointed by this, Prudhomme still retained his enthusiasm for being what he classed as a mercenary. 
Police who searched his home after the manhunt found several well-thumbed survivalist textbooks, including one called No Need to Die, which in a strange twist of fate was written by a tracker named Eddie McGee, the very same man who was awarded a commendation for bravery in 1983 for his part in searching for Prudhomme. It even transpired later that Prudhomme had actually met Eddie McGee some years previously and had attended at least one lecture given by McGee on the subject of surviving in the wild and living off the land. Seemingly devoted to his family, Prudhomme worked hard to provide a good and prosperous lifestyle for them. He worked away in the oil fields of the Middle East to provide for his family, but in 1977 his wife Gillian left him and took their children after she had an affair with a neighbour. They divorced soon afterwards, and after the divorce was finalised, Prudhomme met a girl called Carol Francis, who was half his age, and the couple took up a nomadic lifestyle, drifting around the country from place to place. Both would only occasionally work, with her taking sporadic employment as a waitress, whilst he worked periodically on and off oil rigs. The couple then went to Canada to adopt the same lifestyle, followed by a period in the United States before returning to the UK and settling down to an existence in a mid-terraced house in Leeds, not too far from where Prudhomme had spent his early years. It was the period spent in the USA that Prudhomme was able to obtain the pistol that he used in his rampage, a Beretta Model 71 Jaguar, smuggling it back to the UK when he and Carol returned in 1981. The couple reportedly rowed lots following their return, with Prudhomme turning, in Carol's words, moody, selfish and violent, and after Barry attacked and severely wounded a 54-year-old motorist with an iron bar in January 1982, which was the offence that he'd not answered the court date for, Carol left him after this and returned to live with her mother. When Prudhomme's name had been released to the media as being wanted for questioning concerning the rampage, Carol made this appeal to him through the media. Barry, if it is you that police are looking for at Moulton, I'd like to appeal to you now to give yourself up before anyone else gets hurt, so please stop this now. If it is you that they're after, I'd like to see an end to it now before matters get worse, so listen to what the police are saying and do anything they say for the good of all. So the direct appeal to Prudhomme Dunn, Police Chief Constable Kenneth Henshaw of North Yorkshire Police then issued this statement to the public. Under no circumstances should anyone approach this man. He is dangerous, ruthless and a callous individual who will not hesitate to shoot at anyone. Anyone who approaches him is in extreme danger of being killed. He is obviously a trained marksman. What triggered Prudhomme to initially kill has never been clearly ascertained, but his mind had seemingly snapped after Carol had left him and he'd brooded and fantasised throughout the subsequent months until he'd left his Leeds home one morning that mid-June, armed and mentally ready to kill. He was never to return to the house. The inquest that opened in Scarborough on Thursday the 7th of October 1982 called several witnesses to it, including PCs Oliver and Woods, Mrs Sylvia Luckett and several witnesses who had seen the shootings and had encountered Prudhomme throughout the manhunt. But it was perhaps the evidence given by the Johnson family that best offered an insight into Prudhomme's rampage, into the mindset behind it. Mrs Bessie Johnson, who'd been held hostage along with her husband and son on the final night of Prudhomme's life, told how she'd been surprised in her kitchen by Prudhomme, who'd pointed a gun at her and said, 
you know who I am, don't you? She replied that she didn't, and Prudamud marched her into the sitting room at gunpoint and tied her and her husband together with string. He then cooked himself fried eggs and bacon, but had been disturbed by the Johnson's 43-year-old son Brian, who, seeing his parents bound, ran into the living room and was stopped at gunpoint. He was also tied up, and Prudham told him, You stupid bastard, if you'd run the other way, I would have shot you. Once all three had been securely tied up, and having seen himself on a television news bulletin and learned that a tracker was searching for him, Prudham went on to tell the Johnsons of his exploits over the previous weeks. Mr Johnson related to the inquest how Prudham had described the shooting of PC Haig. I was in a clearing and had been asleep all night in the car. The policeman approached me and questioned me. He mentioned something about me hitting a man with a bar in January. He was going to take me in, so I immediately shot him. Prudham then described how he'd moved on to Lincolnshire and broken into the home of Mrs Jackson and tied her up, but had left her because he knew that she would be released the next morning when the bread delivery driver arrived. Next, Prudham told the Johnsons how he had travelled on foot to the village of Girton, where he'd broken into the Luckett's home to steal their car. He claimed that he'd shot the Luckett's in self-defence after George Luckett had pointed a gun at him. He then fled in their car, the number plates of which he'd substituted stolen ones for, and driven up to Bickley Forest, where he got lost. This was the night that Prudham had attempted to kill PC Oliver and his dog, and it was following this that Prudham made his way to the Malton area, living rough in Dolby Forest for several days. He'd emerged from his hide and entered a shop in Old Malton to buy sausage rolls and bread, but had been reported as suspicious by a member of the public. This was the day Prudham had shot and killed Sergeant Winter. He told Mr Johnson, I heard one copper shout, Watch it, Dave. The policeman climbed a wall and I caught up with him. I thought, I will have this bugger and I shot him. I feel sorry in a way, but not really. He was a policeman. Prudham then untied the Johnson's hands and told them that he'd be leaving in a few hours, but Prudham finally left the Johnson's house at about 5am the next morning. He'd taken food from their larder, which he perhaps prophetically described as my last supper, and had armed himself with his pistol and a two-foot machete. Throughout the night, each member of the Johnson family had tried at different times in vain to appeal to Prudham to give himself up, but each time he replied that he would never let the police take him alive. He vowed to take his own life and as many police officers with him as possible. He had nearly 60 bullets on his person as a testament to this claim, and his final words to the Johnsons before leaving were, I'm going to die, but I will not be the only one. There's nowhere for me to go. Thanks for everything. Less than five hours later, Prudham was dead. Dr Savas Savas, the pathologist who performed the autopsy on Prudham, noted that his feet were badly swollen and bleeding, supporting the view that he'd been exhausted and had been kept on the constant move. He also found that although there were 21 separate injuries to his body that had been caused by pellets as a result of police fire, the two main wounds were a shotgun pellet in Prudham's forehead and a bullet inside his head that had been fired into the right side that was characteristic of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. It was Dr Savas's opinion that either head wound could have caused instant unconsciousness, but the more likely cause of death 
was the self-inflicted gunshot wound to the right side of Prudhomme's head. A coroner's jury supported this, taking just 18 minutes to record a verdict of suicide. The focus of Prudhomme's hatred seemed to have been directed at police, and it seems that his mind had finally snapped. Even if he'd gone on the run to avoid what would seemingly be an inevitable custodial sentence for the January 1982 assault, there's no explanation for why he chose to add such an appalling catalogue of murder and violence to it. He was fit and an experienced outdoorsman. He proved that he was able to evade capture and was skilled at living off the land. He could clearly have gotten away with little or no bloodshed and he may have been able to remain at large for a long time. Yet he brought a manhunt upon himself when he shot dead an unarmed police officer. Prudhomme proved himself ruthless, cold-bloodedly shooting several people and never once attempting to wound or warning people to get back before shooting. It can be argued that he immensely enjoyed killing, nobody he shot offered him any violence and two of them were tied up and sat down at the time he shot them and he wanted to go out in some sort of blaze of glory as seen in so many films like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or something like that. Yet in his final moments when confronted by the armed police he so wanted to kill, his nerve failed him and Prudhomme took his own life. Following his death, he was buried in an unmarked grave in Leeds Hare Hill Cemetery in a private service to deter onlookers. The verdict of suicide at the inquest brought to a close the case of Barry Peter Prudhomme and the manhunt that had paralysed the areas of the UK where the Phantom of the Forest had struck with fear. A manhunt that was at the time the largest armed police operation that the country had ever seen, involving over 12 police forces. But here's the part that made Prudhomme's story so terrifying for the public. After the attempted murder of PC Oliver and his dog, Prudhomme fled into the woods which, within an hour, were flooded with over a thousand police officers. And yet somehow, Prudhomme was able to slip through like some kind of ghost. This paralysed the local area with fear, and for several days afterwards, people in the surrounding area stayed blockaded in their homes. It's reported that some people even left the keys in the car so Prudhomme could just take them without incident. And when he was run to ground, he took the easy way out rather than face justice, with the prospect of a whole life sentence looming over him. It was a bloody end to 17 days of fear that had gripped the nation. So here there was an armed maniac moving over large multiple areas with a ruthless streak and an extreme hatred of police officers. Whilst the manhunt for the Phantom was occurring, at the same time, many miles away, another individual who was no less violent was spending time in custody on one of his frequent prison spells for his own appalling criminal record. And nine years later, in 1991, he too was to embark on a rampage that left several dead and others scarred for life. It was the 11th of October 1991 when Nicholas Vernage stepped out of Wandsworth Prison in London for the first time in five years. His original seven-year sentence for several violent robberies had earned him a two-year early release due to remission in his sentence earned from good behaviour, and Vernage was still a relatively young man. He was just 26 years old, he was intelligent and physically fit, and after five years inside, he still had a chance to make the rest of his life worthwhile, having learned a few hard lessons. Not a chance though, 
any thoughts of making a fresh law-abiding start hadn't even entered Vernage's head. Instead, he'd spent his five years inside developing a seething hatred for everyone, not just the general public, but also people he knew. But he'd developed an especial pure hatred for the police. Having an extensive criminal record stemming from his early teens, Vernage had had many scrapes with the law, and he came to see police doing their job as his mortal enemies. He brooded about this so much during his imprisonment that it became his obsession and life goal to kill a police officer. Furnage had boasted constantly about this when inside. But then in prison, police are universally disliked amongst prisoners, and so he wasn't the only one to say such things. Boasts like these are rife. But Vernage was properly hell-bent on this, and even when he was being released, he said to his former cellmates, Don't worry, I'll be back. I'm going to kill myself a copper. And now he was out on the streets. The first thing Vernage decided to do was to get back to the lifestyle he'd most experienced in and the one that he preferred, crime. Before, he'd stolen cars, committed burglary and check fraud and had dealt drugs. And each time he'd been caught because he hadn't struck back. So that wasn't happening this time. Vernage immediately made sure that he got himself a knife, a wooden and brass lock-type fishing knife with a three and a half inch blade, and this time anyone trying to stop him would see the business end of that. His first priorities were to get somewhere to live, get cash and transport, and find himself a woman. All of the things that he liked, and he'd been denied for five years. He headed back to the areas of East London, and found accommodation in a tower block in Leighton, which was his old haunt. A stolen Ford Cortina provided him transport, and now he was mobile to obtain cash through theft and burglary. The proceeds of this would buy Vernage drugs, which he would then sell on to make himself even more money. Over the next month, Vernage began breaking into properties in the Woodford Green and St Albans Crescent areas, and before long, he'd managed to kit himself out so he looked the part for the early 90s, all gained with the proceeds of theft. And still full of hate, by the 21st of November 1991, Vernage was ready to catch up with an old acquaintance of his. Before he'd been sent down in 1987, Vernage had been in a relationship. I use that in the very loosest term, for Vernage was a violent thug. So he'd been in a relationship with a girl named Lorna Bogle, who he'd known since his childhood. Lorna was by that time a successful financial consultant who had a 12-year-old daughter from a previous relationship, and she'd unwisely gotten involved with Vernage many years previously. She was actually petrified of him and his violence, and when he'd been imprisoned years before, she hoped with relief that that would be it, and that would be the last that she ever heard from him, as he was safely locked away. But on the 21st of November 1991, she answered a knock at the front door of her flat in West Avenue Road, Walthamstow, and found her worst nightmare come true, stood there on the doorstep. Trying to shut the door, Lorna was grabbed by Vernage and dragged by the hair into the communal hallway of the property. A neighbour who lived in the flat opposite Lorna heard her screams and a man's voice shouting abuse, ranting things such as, You never fucking wrote to me once or visited me. Not fucking once when I was inside. Lorna's neighbour looked out and was confronted by what must have been a terrifying sight. Lorna was pinned to the floor 
with an athletic-looking man who had a balaclava hood pulled over his face, holding her down. When the neighbour asked if everything was all right, Vernage told her calmly that yes, everything was fine, and the neighbour shut the door to immediately phone 999. I know it sounds like a daft question asking that when it clearly isn't all right, but it's the kind of knee-jerk reaction that people have and come out with the stupidest sounding of things, like if you clearly hurt yourself and the first thing someone says is, ooh, are you all right? Or there's an empty seat next to you and someone says, is anyone sitting there? And so on and so on. You know what I mean, I'm sure. Sadly, in the few minutes that it took for police to arrive, it was too late for Lorna Bogle. She was found lying on the floor in a pool of blood and despite emergency first aid by attending officers, she was pronounced dead when an ambulance arrived shortly afterwards from a nearby hospital. She was later found to have been stabbed 21 times in the chest, neck and hands, with eight of these blows having pierced her heart. A murder hunt led by Detective Superintendent Terry Mansbridge focused immediately on the statement of Lorna's neighbour, more specifically what she'd heard. They felt that they were looking for a killer who'd recently been released from prison, and a search of files for a man matching the general description of the killer who fit this bill got underway. Vernage's name came up as a possible and very likely suspect early on, but he was just one of several others, and as police were working their way through the list, a second body was discovered. On the morning of Sunday the 24th of November, police received a call about a body lying in the back garden of a property in the Napier Road area of Leytonstone, just a short distance of a couple of miles from the scene of Lorna's killing. Police forced their way into the property, and lying outside the open back door of his home, they discovered the body of 37-year-old minicab driver Javed Iqbal. The house bore signs of ransacking and a struggle, and a post-mortem was to show that Javed had died from a single stab wound to the heart. Javed lived alone, and that Saturday evening had worked a shift until the early hours of Sunday, when he then went home. It looked as though he'd disturbed an intruder in the house by the time he'd got home, and Javed, who was a judo black belt, had challenged the intruder, and had been stabbed to death in the resulting struggle. Judo sadly doesn't beat a killer with a knife. So although the crimes seem to have no obvious connection, there's always that link because of the relative close proximity between the two, two knife attacks three miles apart, and then a stronger link was found, Footprints at the scene of Lorna's murder that had been left in her blood were found to match prints discovered at the scene of Javed's murder. They were an exact match in size and sole pattern, and while this was an interesting link, it wasn't conclusive to prove that the same killer had struck both times. But whilst detectives were probing the possible links, news came through of a third killing, and this time the dead person was a police officer. 41-year-old police sergeant Alan King was a 22-year veteran of the Metropolitan Police, covering the Walthamstow and Chingford areas of London's Waltham Forest District. Sergeant King was a local to this area, having been brought up there, and he loved the role that he played as a community officer, spending time getting to know the people from his patch. He was well known by the law-abiding public, as much as by the local criminal element, and he was generally a well-liked, well-respected officer. 
On Thursday the 27th of November, Sergeant King reported for night duty, and whilst on an evening patrol driving down Higham Hill Road in Walthamstow at about 1am, his attention was drawn to a man who was unloading several items from the boot of a battered Ford Cortina that was parked up nearby to some flats on the road. It's unsure whether it was just a copper's instinct of someone that was up to no good that led him to stop, or if he'd recognised the man, Nicholas Vernage of course, as a known offender, but Sergeant King stopped the unmarked Astra that he was driving, boxing in the Cortina, and approached him. What can be sure, however, is that Vernage did not hesitate in the slightest. He didn't stop and try to bluff his way out of anything or explain anything, he just launched immediately into a murderous attack with his knife, on an unarmed policeman. Sergeant King was stabbed several times and attempted to get back into his vehicle to protect himself from the attack and to radio for immediate assistance. Vernage continued stabbing him in the chest, the back, the neck and even his head. Leaving the badly injured officer in the street, Vernage then burst into the flat where he'd been unloading the stolen goods from the boot of the Cortina, a squalid property that was occupied by another local petty crook, an associate of his, 28-year-old Peter Grenfell. Grenfell was in bed when Vernage burst in, shouting about how he'd just killed a copper and ordering him at knife point to help him move the police car that was blocking the Cortina in. Grenfell did as he was told, and the two went outside. But the initial attack, although it had badly wounded him, it hadn't killed Sergeant King. He'd managed to crawl away from his car, and in a last-ditch attempt for help, he was trying to flag down a passing motorist. When Vernage saw this, his rage and contempt grew, and he said to Grenfell, He's still alive. I'm going to get him. I'm going to fucking finish him off. Vernage ran straight over to Sergeant King and stabbed him several more times in the chest and head. He then severed the lead of the officer's radio from his uniform jacket so there would be no chance, even if he was still clinging to life, of him calling for help. Can you believe the contempt and callousness of someone who does that? Absolutely sickening. Vernage and Grenfell then pushed the Astra out of the way and fled in the Cortina, leaving Sergeant King fatally wounded in the road. A passing motorist, who'd stopped to help before Vernage attacked for the second time, put the officer in his car and drove to Walthamstow Police Station, where Sergeant King's own shocked colleagues tried desperately to save his life. He was rushed to Whips Cross Hospital in a police van, but by the time police arrived there, Sergeant Alan King was dead from eight knife wounds. He left a wife of 19 months and two children from a previous marriage behind. When news of the killing broke, shocked members of the public stacked flowers outside Chingford and Walthamstow police stations, and a former colleague of the fallen officer, Chief Superintendent Stainsby, gave testimony to him. When you look at his career profile, it has the stamp of someone who always wanted to be a police officer. Here is a guy who could have turned his hand to anything. There's not a thing he would not have measured himself up against. The tragic circumstances of his death sum up the man. He saw something going on and got out of his car to deal with it without a thought for anything else. Detective Superintendent Douglas Harvey was put in charge of the hunt for the crazed killer and the investigation wasted no time in learning the name of the occupant of the address where the knifeman had run from, Peter Grenfell. 
as a manhunt began for Grenfell and his accomplice, police all across London were tasked to be on the lookout. It was the only topic of conversation and was the priority instruction at parade before all officers reported for duty on the morning shift. Twenty miles away from the scene of the murder, police constables John Jenkinson and Simon Castry from Thornton Heath Police Station had that Friday morning received such a briefing from their inspector and they'd headed out on patrol in their panda car. At 2.55pm, they received a radio message from the control room at New Scotland Yard reporting burglars having been witnessed breaking into a house in Norwood. Both responded and approached the house cautiously without sirens or flashing lights, hoping to catch the culprits unawares. When they arrived, they spotted a battered Ford Cortina with two occupants inside parked up near the property, and whilst PC Jenkinson approached the car, PC Castry carried out a radio check on the registration of the vehicle. PC Jenkinson was to later describe the moment that he approached the driver's window. I thought I'd been punched in the throat. It wasn't until he pulled back that I realised I'd been stabbed. Blood started to squirt out and I collapsed. He hadn't even had chance to see the knife as Vernage had lashed out at his throat. The knife wound was massive, it had torn into the area of his collarbone and had penetrated six inches down. It had torn through nerves and it had severed his jugular vein. But as PC Jenkinson faded consciousness, he managed to lean in through the window of the vehicle and snatch the keys from the ignition, flinging them away before he passed out. Seeing this happening, PC Castry ran to help his colleague and was immediately attacked by a crazed vernage who stabbed him repeatedly in the head, neck and face. A final vicious stab wound penetrated his head, and although it missed his brain, it did sever a vital artery. But when he'd seen his colleague being attacked, PC Castry had managed to request assistance, and reinforcements were immediately swarming into the area from all over South London. Whilst the officers were found and rushed to hospital, close to death, Several police flooded the scene hunting for the knifeman and his accomplice. Police sniffer dogs traced a trail of blood to a garden nearby to the scene where Vernage was cornered and as officers with shields and truncheons closed in on him, Vernage waved the bloody knife that he had used to kill three people in their faces shouting, Come on, do you want some too? Vernage was quickly overpowered, disarmed and dragged away struggling wildly whilst Grenfell was also arrested nearby. Vernage had done very little to even try to cover his tracks in the murders, but police still needed evidence to tie him to all of the crimes that he'd committed, and luckily this was quite easy to discover. The stolen Ford Cortina held such items as the severed microphone from Sergeant King's uniform, cassette tapes and a wallet stolen from the home of Javed Iqbal, and Laura Bogle's bloodstained passport and jewellery. The two police officers Vernage had tried to murder were saved from the brink of death through emergency surgery. PC Castry had to have a vital artery plugged by a doctor's finger for a period of three hours to save him, and each was to require countless operations. Both were off work for well over a year before they were able to return to their duties. Nicholas Vernage and Peter Grenfell went on trial at the Old Bailey on the 4th of November 1992. Vernage charged with the murders of Lorna Bogle, Javed Iqbal and Sergeant Alan King 
and the attempted murders of P.C. Jenkinson and Castry. Grenfell was jointly charged with the murder of Sergeant King. Both were to plead not guilty to the charges they faced, and prosecuting counsel John Nutting QC told the jury of Vernage, You are looking at a man who is prepared to do anything, absolutely anything, to murder anybody who gets in his way. The trial, which lasted a month, saw the court disgusted and angered at Vernage's complete indifference to the enormity of his situation and his complete contempt for both the court and the proceedings. When he was in the dock, he'd slouch and chew matchsticks, he looked around bored with his hands in his pockets, and he would just constantly grin cockily. When he was under oath answering questions on the witness stand, he said that he felt no remorse whatsoever for his crimes, and when asked if he was sorry for the death of Sergeant King, Vernage actually laughed and said no, not at all. Throughout every day of the trial, Sergeant King's widow Monica and his first wife watched proceedings in tears. On the 7th of December 1992, after a short deliberation, Vernage was convicted of all charges against him. Mr Justice Limbury told him at sentencing, Ever since you were arrested, you have not shown one shred of remorse for the devastation you have caused to the friends and families of your victims. I can find no motive for any of these murders other than to avoid arrest and recognition. You have demonstrated in court your arrogance and in the witness box that you are a consummate liar. It is not pleasant for me to pass judgment on another human being and say he is evil through and through without any redeeming features, but that is the conclusion I am forced to come to about you. He then sentenced Vernage to five terms of life imprisonment with the recommendation that he serve at least 25 years. Vernage simply smiled, remarked loudly, not bad, and as he was being led to the cells below, he turned and said to the judge, By the way, Happy Christmas. Peter Grenfell was cleared of all involvement in the murder of Sergeant King, but he was convicted of burglary offences. At a separate hearing shortly afterwards, he was sent to Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottinghamshire after psychiatric reports from examinations whilst he was on remand concluded that he was mentally ill. Surprisingly, when Vernage had been examined by psychiatrists at Brixton Prison whilst he was on remand awaiting trial, they'd just concluded that he was in no way suffering from mental illness, and instead he was just a cold and ruthless criminal. The detective in charge of the hunt for Sergeant King's killer said of Vernage, He is the most dangerous and frightening criminal I have ever met, probably one of the most dangerous men in the whole country. He has a complete loathing of authority and the police in particular. He was absolutely merciless with his victims and completely unconcerned afterwards. He is a man without normal human feelings and responses. Vernage had been born in Leighton in 1965 and by his early teens the warning signs were already there about him. Violent from an early age, twice in the late 1970s Vernage had been convicted of attacks involving a knife and while serving a sentence in a young offenders institution for one of these attacks, he brutally attacked another inmate with a snooker cue. So the violent streak was well already there and when he was released in the mid-1980s he teamed up with his elder brother John and took his offending up a notch. 
the pair began carrying out a series of violent and terrifying raids on pubs in the East London and Hertfordshire areas. Armed at knife point, they'd break into the premises in the early hours of the morning, long after closing time, and would ambush and assault the landlords as they slept, before robbing them. John Vernage even took these attacks further, and often raped or indecently assaulted the publican's wives. When the pair were eventually caught, John received a ten-year sentence, whilst Nicholas received his seven-year sentence for aggravated burglary, and this was only because he'd played no part in the sexual aspect of the attacks. Again, he'd showed no remorse, and had instead abused and threatened detectives and prison officers, telling them, When I get out, I will find you, and I will kill you. Immediately after his arrest, more signs of the extent of Vernage's hatred were found in a search of the flat that he was living in in All Saints Tower following his release from prison just a few weeks before. On the back of one of the doors, detectives found several hand-drawn pictures of male and female police officers, even a police dog. Each picture had been hacked at and stabbed with both knives and a sharpened screwdriver. Whilst he was being held in the cells at Edmonton Police Station, where he was taken immediately after the attempted murder of PCs Jenkinson and Castry, Vernage scrawled appalling and disturbing graffiti on the cell walls, which read as follows. Detective Sergeant King was killed, stabbed to death, in red boiling unbearable blood. Beneath that was written, Red blood, red rum, when you run. Vernage had an obsession with The Shining, the book and later film by Stephen King, which is where he took the inspiration for the Red Rum message for. I'm sure you've all seen it or you're familiar with the scene I'm going on about anyway. Yet this guy was examined after his arrest and was found not to be suffering from any mental illness, at least not at that time. He was just purely evil and consumed with a hatred for the police. His accomplice, Peter Grenfell, later told detectives, he was eaten up with his hatred of the police. His view was that he was at war with the law. He always said, Whatever police officer gets in my way, they are getting it. I will kill them, I'll put them to sleep. I want a right war with the police. All I want is to kill a copper. If a programme like The Bill came on TV, he would rage and howl at the screen, shouting death threats. Grenfell told police that on the night Vernage had murdered Sergeant King, he watched him stabbing him like a lunatic and went on. He was laughing about it. He thought it was funny. I've had my own psychiatric problems, but I couldn't make this madman out. Can you imagine the further carnage that Vernage would have committed had he not been caught when he was? A memorial stone to, at the spot where Sergeant King was murdered was erected in 1992, where it still stands to this day. Memorials have been held at the spot on several anniversaries of his death following the killing, each time attended by his widow Monica, his family and several of his former colleagues. Vernage has remained incarcerated for many years in the prison system first, before being moved to a secure hospital facility after he was diagnosed with a personality disorder, which is about time, eh? He made the headlines in 2016 after it was revealed that he'd been back out on the streets though. A national newspaper revealed how Vernage had been transferred from Broadmoor to a medium secure psychiatric unit and was now being given escorted secret weekly visits to a nearby village. 
from the undisclosed location where he's detained, seemingly paving the way for him to be released from custody into the community. Now understandably this caused public anger and the families of Vernage's victims have appealed against this decision, quoting then Home Secretary Theresa May's promise that police killers would serve whole life tariffs. Sergeant King's widow Monica King described the decision to allow Vernage into the community as disgusting, saying, I clung to the fact that with five life sentences and a recommended minimum tariff of 25 years, he would never come out. That was stupid of me. It is disgusting, absolutely disgusting. Life should mean life, and particularly in cases which involve the murders of children and police officers. Where is the deterrent in this? It's totally ridiculous. He'll be laughing in our faces. When Vernage was tried, no mention was made of mental illness. He was just pure evil. He knew what he was doing, and what he wanted to do was kill police officers. Alan happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. It could have been any officer unlucky to come across Vernage as he was determined to kill one. That man has ruined so many lives. But I feel worse for the two officers he left for dead rather than myself. I didn't come up against him face to face, and what John and Simon went through was horrifying. It is pretty disgusting, isn't it? It's clear to me that from the horrific crimes that this individual committed, just within a period of a few weeks, that for public safety before punishment, he should never again see the light of day. This is a guy who left children without a mother and father, who hadn't the slightest bit of remorse for doing so, and treated the whole situation as a joke, and the only emotion ever shown by him was anger, aimed at figures he hated because of their job and as a response to someone not writing to him, believing that he'd been wronged there. Can Vernage really have changed that consuming hatred that drove him to become a lifer after three horrific murders, so much so that he can tentatively be let out into an unsuspecting community? Sadly, in the light of some of the decisions that we see each day concerning the release of dangerous people and predators, I'd fear that it's only a matter of time before Vernage is once again on the streets. I believe that would be a firm wrong decision because I think that he would still be a dangerous killer and one that not only never deserves release but that is never safe to be released. Reading his disturbing case I became convinced of this. What do you guys think? The two cases this week are just two of the instances where serving members of the police force have lost their lives due to the actions of individuals with a deep loathing for them too blinkered or arrogant to see that they are actually the people in the wrong by breaking the law, and to turn on a public servant just doing their job paints just how evil some people can be, there's no excuse or provocation. And there are so many other cases, I was quite shocked to see exactly just how many are on the list of officers killed in the line of duty, some names more familiar than others. Yet what's the answer, do we arm all police, increase the punishment for any offences of violence against the police, what do we do? The criminal element will always hate what they stand for, and I fear there'll always be that one person who hates them just enough to spill over into murder. Thoughts, as always, are welcomed in the group thread for debate. I know that the usual suspects will chip in with their feedback for it, as always, but it's an open invite for anyone to get in touch to discuss the Death on Duty episode. Share your thoughts on the cases of Barry Prudham and Nicholas Furnage, by all means. I hope their tales are ones that you found informative and have kept you listening anyway. 
You can get in touch with me through my social media links, which are always with the episode show notes. Or if you don't already and you wish to, then simply look up the True Crime Enthusiast, and if you see the show logo of the creepy hand on the window, there I am. Don't forget also that if you have been entertained and you don't already, then you have the opportunity to hear extra bonus episodes of the show as a Patreon supporter for a very reasonable contribution each month, with a new bonus episode always added on the 1st of the month. There are 7 to date, with number 8 coming on the 1st of September, and that can be found either through the links in my show notes or by searching out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on Patreon. I shall be back next week on the regular show with another case, this time a themed episode with a bit of a mix of solved and unsolved cases, and I hope that you can join me then. Until next time, this is Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing all of you guys a happy and safe week, and I shall speak to you soon. Take care all, thanks for joining me, and goodbye for now.